0: Welcome to the Campion College podcast, the official home for audio recordings of college events, guest talks, public lectures, interviews, conferences and more. Join us now for an interview with Campion College President Dr Paul Morrissey and author of God Is Good For You, Greg Sheridan. And it's our great pleasure today to have uh, the foreign affairs editor for the Australian newspaper. Mr. Greg Sheridan with us uh, to speak about his recent book, God is Good for You, A Defence of Christianity in Troubled Times. So it's uh, great to have you here, Greg. Thanks, Paul. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, so just to, just to start with, um, you know, what was the motivation behind uh, writing this book?
1: Well, Paul, <coughs> about three years ago I read another book and I went to a whole swag of um, writers' festivals, saw hundreds and hundreds of books promoted, and found, to my astonishment, that there was not a single book written from a pro-Christian or even a pro-Jewish viewpoint. And of course, 50 or 60 years ago, the best-selling books in the Western world were all Christian books, as were the uh, best-selling movies and so forth. And I thought an essential element of our culture and our, our civilization is being just whited out, and people aren't hearing anything about it. So I thought I could just contribute my little soupçon of knowledge to the vast ocean of human discourse uh, on this matter.
0: Great. I mean, it, look, I love the book. Great. I've, Thanks, it, Paul. Yeah, uh, you know, really enjoyed it. I mean, you've got a great uh, writing style, very engaging, and uh, and look, I'm a theologian by profession, so I'm fairly. Archipelic. That makes you a dangerous person. Yeah. <laughs> very dangerous um but you know what i love about the book is that it can draw people in who perhaps maybe you know semi-interested in christianity or maybe not even interested at all but can draw them in with the i think the very powerful um idea of stories you know the stories of people's own sort of life of faith and um Mm -hmm. so i'm just interested in 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 that approach because it's the first part of the book is what I would call more apologetic in nature, looking at Christianity and perhaps why it might be true. And then you you bring in a lot of stories about uh, different people. So
1: So that that structure, Paul, uh, was something that was arrived at with a good deal of struggle, as the old Marxists would have said. And um, originally I planned to thread people's stories into the arguments, uh, as it were. But I wanted to provide the basis of knowledge and reason about the faith. I mean, theologians like you know infinitely more about it than me, but I, I thought, you know, this is a subject which amateurs are allowed to, uh, allowed to address. And um, given that there is so little material uh, that's allowed into the public square, like Australian Christians produce magnificent material, but the culture pays no attention to it. So I ended up with this two-part structure, Christianity What does it believe? What is its history? Why is it reasonable? What are its problems? And then the second half was Christians. And um, the fairly obvious subtext of the second half was, look, these are some pretty interesting and uh, smart people. And if they hold these beliefs, perhaps the beliefs aren't entirely stupid. And also, then I wanted to see some positive signs, because although ambient Christianity is in decline, there are fantastic positive stories like Campion College, but also, you know, things like the Focolare movement and, uh, you know, different parishes that are doing brilliantly well and so forth. Yeah, absolutely.
0: It's uh, And the other thing I really liked about the book is that it's a broad church, both in terms of its, you know, its non-denominational sort of approach to things, uh, but also in terms of even the, the political figures, you know, the section on the different politicians and their Somewhat eclectic, some might say, beliefs, but it was uh, it really did humanise them.
1: Well, I'm very grateful to the politicians, but <clears throat> on that first matter of being non-denominational, so um, I was a bit inspired by the great C.S. Lewis classic, Mere Christianity. So C.S. Lewis says of himself that he's an orthodox Anglican, straightforward Anglican, but he wanted to write a book that was equally available, so to speak, to more or less any Christian who could... Uh, pretty well sign up to the Apostles' Creed. And a lot of Christian authors have taken this view. Tim Keller, the great uh, New York Presbyterian evangelical, wrote a wonderful book, I think, called The Reason for God. And he t- also takes that view. So he doesn't advance the specific Presbyterian interpretations of contentious doctrine and so on. So I'm a Catholic. I'm very, you know, thrilled, proud, delighted to be a Catholic. But but I'm not sort of presenting contentious points of Catholic versus Anglican doctrine or anything like that. And I was very happy in the writing of the book to be welcomed by Pentecostals and evangelicals, uniting church people, Coptic, uh, Egyptian, Coptic uh, Australians, and, of course, Catholics. And then the individuals that I write about, they also have a range of different religious backgrounds. And I, I do two chapters on serving and former politicians because I knew that they had religious belief, but almost no one else did. And uh, I don't necessarily want them to become like Americans, where they wear their their beliefs on their sleeve all the time. But I thought people would be interested to know that they had these beliefs. And, um, and I thought the uh, Christians deserved the sense of solidarity from knowing that Malcolm Turnbull and Bill Shorten and Penny Wong and Andrew Hastie and... Uh, Mike Baird and Christina Keneally, and so both sides of politics, Kim Beasley and Tony Abbott, they all had very deep and serious Christian beliefs, and normally they never asked about them, and normally they never talk about them. So, mind you, it was a bit like, uh, you know, a dentist pulling teeth. It was quite hard work to get them to agree to these interviews, but they all did in the end.
0: Did you have many knock you
1: back? I only had one knock me back, and I won't I won't well, say well, who I mean, he is because I don't want to don't want to defame him, but. Getting um, Malcolm Turnbull and Bill Shorten to agree to do it was very hard work, and I have no criticism of them. They they were both national leaders at the time, and they had to be careful not to offend any group. And they both you know, kept saying, uh, I'd give them last final deadlines when we can do it, and they'd ring me a day later and say, oh, bad luck, mate, I missed the deadline. I said, don't worry, we can still do it. Uh, and, And they both rewarded me. I mean, they both... quite knowledgeable christians they 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 know a lot about what they believe you know not compared to a theologian like you but you know Mm -hmm. for an average person they, they have quite a deep knowledge of what they believe they're both serious about belief they they pray um they're aware of all the challenges of belief and so forth they had different takes on it so i thought they were and you know people might like or dislike their politics, that's fine. But I think all the politicians I interviewed are well motivated human beings. They're trying to do something good, and um, at the heart of them is their religious belief. But it, it's it's never really disclosed no. in Australia. Yeah.
0: No, that's great. I, I really, really did enjoy finding out about them. Their beliefs eclectic, so <laughs> they? Be, I think I quibbled a bit with some of their beliefs of the afterlife. But yes, but in your <laughs> splendid review, you said that some of them had a pretty
1: shaky view of what the afterlife was. But that's, uh, that's certainly true. Life, but it's, it's wonderful to have that.
0: Now, one, another thing I wanted to ask you, Greg, was um, a book that seems to be a key text, if you like, that you engage with, certainly some sections of the book, is, is Rod Dre's book, The Benedict Option. I wondered if you want to say something about that.
1: Yes, uh, um, Rod Rea is a very interesting Christian voice. Um, I think he and Ross Duthart uh, at the New York Times are two of the most interesting younger journalistic uh, Christian voices uh, in the world today. The Benedict Option, I don't entirely agree with it, but I find great wisdom in it. So he's saying that it's so hard to live a Christian life and transmit the Christian faith successfully to your kids in the contemporary culture that you need to pull back a little bit now I take from that the lesson that you you need to create institutions that are sympathetic to Christianity, schools, colleges, universities you need to create spaces and of course the very business of going to church for an hour or, or whatever a week, you're withdrawing from the world to uh, to be in that Christian community Rob Dreyer very kindly provided an endorsement for the book. He read the book. He was very positive about it. The only thing he didn't like was the title. He gave me a crisis of faith in the title at the end. He suggested changing it to If We Lose God. And um, and then he said, God is good for you. Sounds like an instruction to eat your broccoli. you know? And uh, turns out he's a wonderful guy. Really, uh, you know, I've only... Met him through email, but he's full of humour and fun. He had all kinds of views about the cover uh, of the book, and it's a very profitable book to read. The Benedict Option. It's it's uncompromising. One of the good things about him and Ross Duthat is that they don't try to sugarcoat things. That they they're temperamentally they're not into despair. So it's not. I mean, conservatives can very easily write these essays of cultural despair. That's terrible. That's you know books to slash your wrist by. That, that that's horrible. So, these guys are optimistic by temperament, but they don't flinch at looking at what a difficult cultural situation it really is. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I loved
0: uh, Ross Dowsett's book, um, um, Bad Religion. Bad Religion. Yeah, wonderful fantastic. book. Yeah, a great book. I yeah. cited in this book. Yeah, and, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful book, looking you know, at contemporary heresies that are in, in the culture that uh, undermine Christianity. Um, another thing, I mean, Campion College is a liberal arts college, and... Um, when I read your book, I felt it was, in a sense, a liberal arts book. It's, uh, you know, it's a very widely read. It engages all aspects of uh, culture and belief, you know, music. Uh, you know, I love this section near the beginning where you talk about Hollywood and popular entertainment and how even that has sort of lost its religiosity. Uh, can you comment a bit on... Hollywood?
1: Absolutely. Pop- popular. So I'm. Um, I was born in 1956 and... When I was growing up, say in the 60s and even the first half of the 70s, Christianity was at the heart of popular culture. And perhaps a decade before I was born, maybe 1950, was the high point. So the biggest selling book, I think, in 1950 or one of those years was The Cardinal by Henry Morton Robinson, which is a terrifically good novel and a wonderfully um, interesting treatment of the life of a Catholic priest, an American Catholic priest. And of course, in the fifties and sixties, the great novels of the time were Evelyn Waugh and Graham Greene, grappling with spiritual issues. One bestseller of that time was um, was Thomas Merton's uh, uh, "Elected Silence" or "The Seven The Seven Side of Mountain," I think it was yeah, called in America. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah a, a memoir of of joining uh, the Cistercian uh, monks, and then Hollywood was very pro-Christian, so you had all these fantastic. Uh, Screen priests played by Spencer Tracy and Gregory Peck and Bing Crosby, yes. who wouldn't want to be Father Flanagan that Ned uh, Spencer Tracy played in Boy's Town? And he was, he was a man's man. He was a great priest. Some um, terrible guys persecuting his kids at Boy's Town, and he says to him, "You know, Father Flanagan, if you weren't wearing that Roman collar, I'd." get up right now and duke it out with you. Spencer Tracy rips off his Roman collar and says, okay, let's go at it right now. And popular culture was supportive of Christianity in that period. Uh, Not only Catholic Christianity, but uh, evangelicals and so on as well. Now, maybe some of it was schmaltzy, maybe some of it was superficial, but all the cues that it gave to people were that Christianity is substantial, true, there were all kinds of public occasions of prayer, and so forth. But now, if you look at popular culture now, Christianity is either absent or or it's malign, or at the very best, it's kind of harmless and silly. So at the start of the Inspector Morse detective series, uh, it treats priests with great respect. They're heroic figures, and Morse comments at one point, people attack priests in order to attack uh, god and and there's a theological literacy to it. He's quoting the poems of Francis Thompson by the end of the Morse series, twenty years later, Morse can't bear to go into a gothic church he hates that type of religion, you know he and and the clerics in Morse towards the end are corrupt, you know uh, adulterers philanderers uh, suspect child molesters, murder suspects the uh, splendidly well-done American crime series Donovan, gripping viewing, but every adult in the main crime family was abused by a priest as a kid, and the crime family murders a priest and remain completely sympathetic. So this is, in a sense, trivial, but the culture has kind of turned against Christianity. It's actively hostile now. And, of course, in Australia, the last census tells us a little more than 50% of people still consider themselves Christians, but you hardly ever see them in yeah. a sitcom or a drama, and you certainly never see them uh, sympathetic. No. Almost yeah. never. Not yeah. quite never, but almost never. Yeah, almost.
0: I completely agree. And I, I think that was a great little section of your book to point that out. And, uh, oh, thanks. And, uh, yeah, really interesting. Um, now, I can't get, a, get finish this interview without uh, allowing you to be as you called yourself before this interview, an apostle for Campion. Um, (laughs) Because was a lovely section about the college in there and signs of hope. And uh, so, um, yeah, I'll I'll allow you to to be an apostle for a moment, Greg.
1: Well, Paul, um, Campion... uh, I want to say a couple of things about Campion. So Campion reignited my interest in the Middle Ages and uh, a, a book that became enormously influential on me and is powerful in my book is... Larry Sittentop's Inventing the Individual, which is all about the magnificent Christian intellectual debate in the Middle Ages and how that gave birth to modernity. But so Campion ignited my interest in that. But Campion, I think, is a magnificent uh, magnificent project to um, create a community of scholarship and fellowship that is almost unique. And in fact, um, I wrote about Campion for the Australian newspaper and then I wrote about it in this book under Signs of New Life. So in that particular chapter, Signs of New Life, I deal with two evangelical uh, Protestant parishes in Perth, which I think are absolutely magnificent. I deal with the lay movement focalare, and I deal with Campion. And when Rod Dreyer read the book, he emailed me back and he said, the way you describe Campion, it sounds like heaven. He said... Uh, I can't wait to see it when I, uh, when I visit Australia. Now, I'm sure Campion has its ups and downs, and of course no, no life on earth is really heavenly. But I think the structure of the Campion curriculum, uh, so the four subjects, theology, history, uh, literature, and philosophy. and philosophy, and with the first year in the ancient world, the second year in the medieval world, and the third year in the modern world, and with an integrated sense of that, and then also with the primary vocation of the college being teaching rather than accumulating research citations, uh, it is a fantastic um, highway to a real liberating, genuine, substantial education. And it is in fact the sort of education which I've spent my life pursuing as an amateur, and all of these Campion graduates are going to start out smarter than where I end up. But good on them, good on them. <laughs> uh, I think that's fantastic. I'm envious of them, but and on the other hand, I'm thrilled that, uh, that Campion exists. And it's astonishing to me, going back to why I even wrote this book, that there is so little of the great uh, inheritance in our mainstream education system. So there's this silly controversy that if you study Western civilization you you become a drone-like apologist for it. But of course, making my first acquaintance at this mature age of my life with Dante, I find that Dante in um, The Divine Comedy puts Pope Boniface in the eighth circle of hell or something. And it's a fantastic critique of the corruption of the medieval church, or parts of the medieval church, and of course, I, ha- I haven't yet really started reading Dante, I'm reading about Dante, but what an exciting, thrilling thing this is, and um, I fell in love with the Old Testament in writing this book, and like a lot of Catholics, I hadn't spent that much time reading scripture, especially <laughs> the Old Testament, and what fun the Old Testament is, why would you deprive people of this fun, the book of Jonah, the book of Ruth, and so forth, and um it's as if this is a golden secret which our culture has determined that nobody will ever will know what Kim Kardashian eats for dinner. <laughs> we'll we'll know all about Miley Cyrus's love life, but by golly, no student is going to hear about Ruth or Jonah or Dante. Well, at Campion, you know, somebody's unlocked the secrets, yeah. and I think uh, you know, I wish it. I wish it every success. Yeah. No. Thanks, Greg. And uh, yeah, we certainly that's that's our aim to really.
0: Uh, cultivate within our students a great love for the the great thinkers and the great events and great ideas that have um, brought Western civilization, warts and all. And and, uh, and a and a country like ours, Australia. Um, and so yeah, th- thank you very much, Greg. And I look I can't you, recommend Greg's uh, book highly enough. It's a wonderful read. It's the sort of book that can really give to someone, particularly if you're a faith, to give to someone who, you know, maybe a faith but, you know, is a bit uh, maybe a bit lost, but they're it's just such an engaging read, it brings, um, you know, there's some apologetics there, but a very engaging type of apologetics, Greg mentioned C.S. Lewis as being an influence. And, and C.S. Lewis was a great apologist because he used story, he used great analogies, he was a literature professor, so he knew about a wide range of stories and, um, and great works. And, and Greg, even though he very humbly said that he's uh, an amateur, he's, uh, he's very widely read, he's a great engage with culture. And and that's really brought out in this book. And I think Christianity, as soon as it engages the wider culture and it engages its great history, it becomes very, very, um, you know, attractive. It, yes. it has an innate attractiveness, and that's uh, in some ways we've lost that in the last, uh, I would say, the last forty or fifty years. So, full credit to you, Greg. I really, Thanks do recommend this call. book. And um, yeah, I th- thank you for joining us.